Hey everyone, I'm Ben Norton, and this is the Multipolarista podcast. And I am—I have the great pleasure of being joined today by one of my favorite guests, one of I think the most important economists in the world today. I'm speaking with Professor Michael Hudson. If you've seen any of the interviews I've done with Professor Hudson over the past few years, you, you probably know that he's a brilliant analyst. He always has the, I think, the best analysis to understand what's going on economically and also politically, geopolitically in the world today. And you know, right right now is I think a very important moment to have Professor Hudson on. Today we're going to talk about the economic war on Russia and the process of economic decoupling between Russia and China and the West, which is something that Professor Hudson has talked about for many years, and that really has accelerated with the Western sanctions on Russia over Ukraine. We're also going to talk about the decline in U.S. dollar hegemony. A recent report from the International Monetary Fund, which is dominated by the U.S., acknowledged that the use of the dollar in foreign bank reserves is gradually declining. Now, it's not going to disappear overnight, but even the IMF is acknowledging that dollar hegemony is eroding. And of course, the IMF acknowledged that the Western sanctions on Russia is going to further erode the hegemony of the U.S. dollar. We now see Russia doing business with China in the Chinese yuan. Russia is also doing business with India, with the Indian rupee. And of course, Russia has been telling Europe that if it wants to buy Russian energy, it has to do so with Russian rubles. So there's so much to talk about today, Professor Hudson. But I want to begin in the, in the first half of this interview today talking about a new book that you're just about to publish. Today is Monday, May 9th. You said on Wednesday, May 11th, the book comes out, and it's called The Destiny of Civilization. And for people watching, I'll get it up here. The Destiny of Civilization, Finance Capitalism, Industrial Capitalism, or Socialism. And everything that I just prefaced this interview with discussing the economic war in Russia and sanctions and decoupling, this is all deeply related to what you talk about in this book. And I had the pleasure of getting an early copy and, and reading through it. It's, it's a really important book, I think. And you, you talk about this fundamental divide internationally. And, and this is a divide that actually goes back historically as well between these three models for different economic systems you discuss. Finance capitalism, industrial capitalism, and socialism. And your argument is that the U.S. empire has been a force for imposing neoliberalism, which is a particular form of finance capitalism, which is non-productive, in which finance capital destroys productive industries in, in pursuit of rent-seeking and what you call the rentier class. So instead of producing, as the classical bourgeois economists had, had said capitalism would be a productive system, instead, finance capitalism is fundamentally a system of destruction and debt. And your argument is that this is deeply rooted in U.S. foreign policy. This is the U.S. foreign policy strategy for expanding its economic power is is imposing this finance capitalist model on the world. So can can you expand further on, on your argument about the, the fight between finance capitalism, industrial capitalism and socialism and why you decided to publish this book now? Well, the book came out of a series of... Uh... 10 lectures that I did for uh, my Chinese audience. Uh, I've been a professor at uh, Peking University for a number of years uh, in economics and uh, pro um, have professorships at other universities, uh, Wuhan and uh, Hong Kong. Uh, and I have a fairly large uh, 
uh, audience of about 65,000 people for a lecture there. And uh, I was asked to give my general overview, sort of a, a history of uh, economic development uh, in the West uh, for the Chinese. And in order to understand today's finance capitalism, you have to understand what industrial capitalism was as it was described in the 19th century. And it's often forgotten or played down that industrial capitalism was revolutionary. Uh, what it was trying to do from the physiocrats in France in the late 18th century to Adam Smith, John Stuart Mill, Marx, and uh, the, the whole late uh, 19th century flowering of socialism, the ideal of, uh, of classical value theory and rent theory was to, to say, what, what is uh, the actual value, the cost value of producing goods and services? And uh, what is earned by the capitalist and when he employs labor to make a profit? And what is unearned? Uh, and what's unearned was the landlord class that was uh, the hereditary uh, warrior class for, that had conquered uh, all of the European kingdoms in the Middle Ages. And uh, the uh, attempt by England's industrialists uh, was saying, look, we cannot become the workshop of the world. We cannot undersell foreign countries uh, uh, if we have a landlord class raking off all of the uh, money in land rent uh, and if we have predatory banking. Uh, or the wealthy people uh, just lend really for buying property or making distress loans or uh, predatory loans that have nothing to do with financing actual capital formation. Uh, well, what made this re capitalism revolutionary was the British industrialists and advocacy of industry. Even the bankers in Ricardo's time uh, said, well, in order to uh, uh, overthrow the landlord class, which controls the House of Lords and all of the upper chambers of government in Europe, we have to have democratic reform. If we give, have democratic reform and give voting to the people, they're going to vote against the landlord class. And then we can uh, have an efficient economy where our prices of our exports and our goods and services reflect the actual cost of production, not the rake-off for the rentier class, not the rake-off of land, what landlords take not the rake-off of what uh, uh, predatory bankers take. And uh, the whole uh, long 19th century leading up to World War I was this revolutionary value theory that depicted uh, land rent and monopoly rent and financial uh, returns as being unearned income and uh, wanting to strip it away. And uh, all of this seemed to be moving towards socialism. Uh, the industrialists uh, were all in favor of uh, government uh, public utilities, of government uh, enterprise, because they said, if the government doesn't provide health care, then individuals are going to have to pay it, and it'll cost a lot of money, like it does in the United States. And so you had the conservative prime minister of England, Benjamin Disraeli, saying, health, all is health. We've got to provide public health for the people. And it was uh, the conservative Bismarck in Germany that says, we've got to provide pensions. If labor has to save up for the pensions, then uh, it's not going to have enough money to buy the goods and services that we Germans are producing. Uh, we've got to make pensions public. So uh, all of this move towards socialism was uh, not only uh, in favor of uh, increasing living standards, uh, which soared in the 19th century, but also in freeing economy from the rentier class, from the landlords, 
from the bankers. And for the classical economist, a, a free market was a market free from landlords, free from bankers, free from monopolists. Well, uh, needless to say, the rentiers fought back. Uh, and by uh, after World War II, we've seen a continual uh, anti-classical theory, uh, replacing the classical idea of free markets with uh, a value-free theory, saying, well, everybody earns whatever they, uh, they have. All wealth is earned, not unearned. And if uh, Goldman Sachs uh, partners are paid more than anyone else, that's because they're so productive. So you had to move uh, rejecting classical economics to junk economics and a kind of artificial economics that doesn't really talk about how uh, finance capitalism uh, has worked. And uh, as it turns out, uh, the business plan of finance capitalism was so predatory that it was anti-industrial. That's why President Clinton in the United States uh, moved to uh, uh, invite China into the International Labor Organization, saying, uh, well, we can fight wage uh, rises in America by uh, a race to the bottom. We can, we can hire Asians to do work, and that will uh, cause unemployment here, and that's wonderful for the industrialists. Uh, it will basically uh, cut, cut wages and keep American wages down. Well, that uh, uh, basically is the strategy of finance capitalism, and the aim of finance capitalism is not to invest in uh, uh, factories and plant and equipment and research and development, but to live in the short term but to make money by financial engineering, not industrial engineering, and it becomes predatory. And so you have the whole uh, ideological attack on public enterprise. You have uh, Frederick Hayek's The Road to Serfdom, where you say, if the government provides uh, uh, public health care, that's the road to serfdom, where actually it's finance capitalism that's the road to debt peonage and serfdom. Uh, and uh, the, you have now a whole disparagement of government, and all of this is a counter-revolution to the revolutionary uh, impetus of uh, industrial capitalism in its early stages. And uh, it's true that corporations now are just as right-wing as uh, uh, the, uh, the banks and the, uh, the hedge funds, but that's because the corporate industry has been taken over by the financial sector, and the heads of... Uh, uh, almost every industrial corporation are rewarded to how high, by how, how high they can push the stock price to exercise the stock options they're paid in. And you increase the stock price not by investing more, not by hiring more labor or increasing productivity or uh, increasing sales, but simply by using whatever income you have to, bu to buy back your stocks. And by buying back your stocks, this forces up uh, their price. And most of all, by giving political contributions in this country to the Democrats and Republicans alike to appoint Federal Reserve heads that have spent uh, seven to nine trillion dollars buying up stocks and bonds to increase the price of uh, uh, buying a retirement income, to increase uh, Wall Street prices, to increase housing prices, and make America even less competitive uh, industrially. So finance capitalism is what is uh, essentially deindustrialized the United States and turned the Midwest into a rust belt. Well, the alternative, obviously, is our societies that have not followed uh, this neoliberal finance capitalist plan. And the uh, most successful economy, obviously, has been China, uh, which is why I've been spending so much time uh, there. 
uh, and the uh, obviously China has kept has done exactly what 19th century United States, Germany, England, and France did. It's it's kept uh, basic utilities, basic needs, housing, and above all finance and banking in the public domain as public utilities. Instead of having an independent financial sector operating on its own uh, self-interest, the Bank of China creates the money. And the Bank of China lends money by deciding where do we need to have investment in uh, real estate to provide housing for the population at a a, a lower price as we can uh, make it? How do we provide uh, build up the industry? How do we provide an educational system of training? How do we provide health? And uh, uh, you have, uh, the fact is that uh, the central planning in a efficient uh, socialist style, not not the Stalinist uh, planning that everybody refers to of uh, Russia, but uh, uh, a mixed economy as you have in China, which is truly a mixed economy uh, with, with guidance, like the French call planification, uh, well, that is obviously uh, the way in which uh, you survive and you avoid uh, the kind of uh, overloading the economy with debt service, with high rents, with high payments to uh, the healthcare monopoly in the United States uh, by avoiding uh, all of this payment to a rentier class that has what the classical economists call unearned income, predatory income, uh, and instead of unseating them, we've uh, put them in charge and made uh, the banks and Wall Street and the city of London and the Paris Bourse the central planners. Uh, so we do have central planning, much more centralized than anything that was dreamed by the socialists. But the planning, uh, centralized planning is done by the financial sector. Uh, and uh, financial planning is short-termism. It's short-term planning. It's taking your money and run, and that's what is uh, stripping and impoverishing the global economy today. Absolutely. And you, in your book, you write about the important distinction between the neoclassical economic idea, excuse me, not the neoclassical, the classical economic idea of a so-called free market, and how you argue that neoliberals turn that idea on its head. So this is what you write in your book. And this is, again, uh, Michael Hudson's new book, The Destiny of Civilization, which is out this week. You write, the neoliberal ideology inverts the classical idea of a free market from one that is free from economic rent to one that is free for the rentier classes, that is the rent extracting classes, to extract rent and gain dominance. So they, they completely flip the idea of what it means to have a free market. And then you, you note that in contrast to classical political, political economy, this neoliberal ideology promotes tax favoritism for rentiers, privatization, financialization, and deregula- deregulation. And you discussed all of that. That is, of course, what we could call the Washington Consensus. And then you argue that U.S. foreign policy seeks to extend this neoliberal rentier program throughout the world. And you have a very interesting section of your book where you you discuss this this concept as free trade imperialism. So can you talk about what your your idea of free trade imperialism is and how it relates to U.S. foreign policy? 
Well, the, uh, the Nobel Prize is given uh, basically for junk economics. And probably the worst junk economist of the century was Paul Samuelson. Uh, he made the absurd claim that he proved mathematically that if you have free trade then uh, country and don't have tariffs and don't have any government protection, then everyone will become more equal. Uh, uh, at least the proportions between labor and capital will be more equal. Well, the uh, reality is just the opposite. And the term free trade imperialism was actually caused, uh, created by uh, a British uh, historian of trade theory uh, who pointed out that, wait a minute, when England went for, for free trade, the idea was if we have free trade, we can stifle other countries from being able to uh, industrialize. Because if we have free trade, then the Amer uh, we can tell uh, America, uh, we will open our uh, doors to your markets, meaning the markets of the slave South that, uh, that Britain supported. And uh, in exchange, you will open your markets to our industrial goods. If Amer uh, And America followed that until the Civil War. Uh, which was fought not only on, over slavery, but by the Republican Party uh, after 1853 uh, that said very explicitly, if we're going to win the election, uh, the Whigs never could win. If we, the new party, are going to win the election and industrialize America, uh, it, we've got to uh, un integrate ourselves with the uh, uh, anti-slavery issue, with uh, uh, emancipation, but uh, for us, uh, the uh, economic war of America is a war to either we're going to have protective tariffs in the North, uh, or uh, we're going to end up as a non-industrial uh, raw materials producing society as the South wants. And that was uh, the debate from uh, uh, 1815, when the Napoleonic Wars ended and world trade began again, until uh, really uh, the Civil War. And America became strong in the way that Germany became strong too, by having protective tariffs in order to have prices large enough to nurture uh, what was called infant industry, to nurture American manufacturing. Uh, and I wrote a long book about this, uh, published uh, uh, years ago, based on my PhD dissertation, uh, America's Protectionist Takeoff. Well, uh, the Engli English tried to fight against other countries protecting their economies, uh, saying that if you just have free trade, you'll get rich. Where the reality is, if you have free trade, you'll get poor if you're not already able to uh, have industrial and labor productivity and agricultural productivity uh, on a par with the most advanced uh, countries. Uh, the free trade was an attempt to prevent other countries from investing uh, government money in building up their agriculture, in uh, building up their industry, in building up their productivity, in creating a school system uh, for uh, to rise raise wages to make uh, wages more productive. And the American protectionists said, well, uh, we're going to have a high-wage economy because high-wage labor undersells pauper labor. And American uh, skilled, uh, well-fed, uh, well-rested uh, American labor can produce much more than uh, the pauper labor of other countries that have free trade. Well, uh, what the leading American uh, protectionist economist uh, Erasmus Peshine Smith went to Japan and helped uh, industrialize, uh, helped Japan break away from British free trade, helped uh, Japan industrialize. Other American economists, uh, 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 other uh, foreign economists, all picked up the ideas of the American protectionists, like Friedrich List uh, went to Germany 
promoting protectionism. And uh, uh, Peshine Smith's book, The Manual of Political Economy, was translated into all the foreign languages, Japanese, Italian, French, German. Uh, and you had uh, Europe uh, realizing that uh, free trade polarizes economy, uh, economies. Well, it was this that uh, uh, after World War uh, One and especially World War Two, when you had orthodox economics turning into basically propaganda, uh, that's where you had uh, uh, Samuelson and others try to convince other countries, governments are bad, leave everything to the uh, to the uh, wealthy people, to the finance people, trickle down economies. Uh, it's all going to trickle down. Uh, don't worry, just uh, give more money uh, to the rich and uh, don't have any government interference with markets. Whereas America had got rich by interfering with markets uh, to shape them uh, in the years leading up to World War I. But after World War I, uh, America had already achieved its industrial dominance. Uh, and it was after World War I that America said, okay, now uh, our protective tariffs have enabled us to uh, outproduce all the other countries and our protectionist agriculture, especially. The most pro protected sector in America has always been agriculture since the 1930s. Uh, it, uh, basically, it uh, uh, said, well, now that uh, we can outproduce other countries, we can uh, undersell them. Now we can tell them to go for free trade. And after World War II, the Americans created the World Bank uh, for Economic Impoverishment and uh, the International Monetary Austerity Fund. Uh, and the World Bank's leading uh, objective was to prevent other countries from investing in uh, their own food production. The guiding uh, line of the World Bank was, uh, we've got to provide infrastructure for uh, building up plantation agriculture in Latin America and uh, Africa and other countries so that they will grow tropical export crops, but they cannot be permitted to grow grain or wheat or feed themselves. They must be dependent on the United States. Uh, and so the function of free trade, the World Bank and the International Monetary Fund has been to finance uh, dependency uh, backed up by uh, the American support of dictatorships throughout Latin America who agree to uh, have client oligarchies supporting uh, pro-American trade patterns and uh, uh, avoiding uh, any, uh, any kind of uh, self-reliance so that the United States can uh, do what it's recently done to Russia and other countries, impose sanctions, say, well, now that you've depended on us for your grain, we can now uh, impose sanctions and you can't uh, feed yourself if uh, you don't follow the policies we want. That was the policy that America tried to use against China after Mao's revolution. And uh, fortunately for China, Canada broke that uh, monopoly and said, well, we're going to sell grain to China. Uh, and uh, uh, that uh, China was always very friendly to Canada in those uh, earlier decades. So uh, uh, basically, Free trade uh, means no government, no socialism. It means central planning, essentially by Wall Street. Uh, countries should let American firms come in, buy control of their raw materials, resources, control of their oil and gas and mineral rights and forests and uh, plantations, and uh, uh, basically let other countries uh, uh, send their whole economic surplus to the United States or it will be duly financialized and to buy out other countries' uh, raw materials and 
rent yielding resources. Yeah. And in your book, you have a, a very funny passage that I think really encapsulates this ideology that you're talking about here. You write, you refer to Charles Wilson, who was the Secretary of Defense under Eisenhower in the US, and he was also the former CEO of General Motors. And he famously said, what's good for General Motors is good for the country. And you know that that, that idea has morphed into the idea that what's good for Wall Street is good for America. And then you note that uh, this merged with evangel evangelistic US foreign policy that says what's good for America is good for the world. And therefore, the logical syllogism is clear. What's good for Wall Street is good for the world. And you describe this, you link it to the new Cold War, this idea that what's, what's, good, what, what's good for the US is good for the world. And what's good for Wall Street is good for the US. Therefore, what's good for Wall Street is good for the world. You, you argue that we must recognize how finance capitalism has gained power over industrial economies above all in the United States from which it seeks to project itself globally led by the financialized U.S. economy. Today's new Cold War is a fight to impose rentier-based finance capitalism on the entire world. And this is this is such a, this is such an important analysis because among those very few people of us who talk about this idea of the new Cold War and how dangerous it is, there are very few people who frame it in economic terms. Usually, we frame it in political terms, right? That, that there are ge geopolitical interests between the U.S. and the EU on one side, and China and Russia on the other, and the U the EU going back to Brzezinski and the the Great Chessboard, his 19, 1997 book where he talks about the importance of preventing near strategic competitors from emerging in Eurasia. Uh, that's, of course, a geopolitical discussion, and economics is part of it, but it's often not at the forefront. But your analysis, I think, is, is even more important and more accurate because your argument is not only is it geopolitical, but the geopolitical struggle is rooted in economics, and this is an, an economic struggle between systems. So talk, talk more about the new Cold War and how you see it. Well, as we're seeing now, the world is dividing into two parts. Uh, we can see that in the fight uh, against Russia, which is also a fight against China and against India, as you noted, uh, and it seems Indonesia uh, and other countries uh, as well. Uh, the United States is pushing a world that can be controlled by American investors that uh, the ideal of the American neoliberal plan is to do to other countries what it did to Russia after 1991. Uh, take all of your public domain, your uh, oil companies, your nickel mines, uh, your electric utilities, give them all to the a wealthy uh, oligarchy that can only make money once it's uh, taken control of these uh, companies by selling the stocks to the West the West will buy out uh, oil, just like uh, Michael Khodorkovsky tried to sell Yukos oil uh, to Standard Oil uh, in the West. And uh, uh, we've got to put an oligarchy that will sell all of the national domain, all of the uh, patri uh, patrimony in natural resources and all the companies to American investors on the cheap. The Russian stock market led all the stock markets in the world from 1994 up to about 1998. Uh, this was uh, a, a huge uh, ripoff. The United States wants to be able to do that to the rest of the world. And it was furious when Russia said, 
We've lost more population as a result of neoliberalism than we did in all of World War II fighting against Nazism. Uh, we've got to stop. And Russia began to say, we've got to uh, use Russia's uh, population and industry and natural resources for Russia's benefit, not for the United States' benefit. Well, the United States was absolutely furious with this, and it, the fury has erupted in uh, the NATO war against Russia in the last few months and what's uh, ongoing now. And the United States says, well, uh, they've... Oh, U.S. Uh, State Department officials have said, what we want to do is carve up Russia into maybe four different countries, Siberia, Western Russia, Southern uh, Russia near Central Asia, uh, maybe uh, Northern Northern Russia. And once we've done that, we've cu we cut Russia off from China. Then we go into China. We finance, uh, we send the ISIS and the Al-Qaeda into the Uyghur areas, uh, the Muslim areas, and we start uh, a color revolution there. And then we break up China into uh, a northern part, the southern part, uh, uh, central part. And uh, once we break them up, we can uh, more or less control them, and uh, we can then come in, buy up their resources, uh, and uh, take over their industry, uh, their labor, uh, and their government, uh, and uh, get richer to ob obtain from China, Russia, India, Indonesia, and Iran, the wealth that we're no longer producing in the United States now that we've deindustrialized. Uh, so that is, uh, the world is dividing into two parts. And the one part is not simply the United States and its uh, European satellites on the one hand versus uh, the non-white population on the other hand. It's uh, finance capitalism versus the rest of the world, which is protecting itself by socialism, which in many ways it, uh, fulfills what was the ideal of industrial capitalism during the 19th century, when industrial capitalism was actually progressive. And it was progressive. That's part of the whole theme of my book. It was, it was revolutionary. It tried to uh, free economies from the legacy of feudalism, from the legacy of hereditary landlords. Uh, and now uh, the financial class is no longer uh, the landlord class, but uh, the financial class, and the landlord class pays most of its rent to the financial class in the form of mortgage interest as it uh, uh, borrows money to uh, buy property and housing and commercial uh, sites on credit. And uh, you have the kind of financialization that has increased housing prices in the United States to over 40% of uh, income uh, that is officially guaranteed uh, for mortgages, that has priced American labor out of the market, privatized health care, 18% of GDP. That's uh, pricing America out of the world market. Uh, debt uh, for car auto debt, uh, student debt, for, which uh, in other countries, education is free. That's pricing America out of the market. So you have a basically uncompetitive economy that's committing financial suicide following the same dynamic that destroyed the Roman Empire, uh, where an oligarch, predatory oligarchy took over and uh, uh, maintained power by an assassination policy of its critics, just uh, very similar to what America has been doing in Latin America uh, and other countries. Uh, so uh, you're having history repeat itself with this, this same kind of world split. And uh, this split couldn't have occurred uh, back in the 1970s. There was the Bandung Conference in Indonesia. There were other attempts at the non-aligned nations to break free 
of American imperialism, but they didn't have a critical mass. So right now, for the first time, you have a critical mass and you have the ability of China, Iran, Russia, India, uh, other countries together to uh, be self-sufficient. They don't need relations with the United States. They uh, can handle their own, they can create their own monetary system outside of the International Monetary Fund, which is basically an arm of the Defense Department. Uh, they can give uh, loans to build up the infrastructure of countries outside of the World Bank, which is basically an arm of the Defense Department, uh, the, deep, the deep state. So you have uh, the American economy, essentially uh, a merger between the military industrial complex and the Wall Street financial fire sector, finance, insurance, and real estate, uh, is a way that really cannot develop any more than the Roman Empire could develop by uh, trying to obtain militarily what it could not produce at home anymore. Well, uh, China and other countries, now that they have their industrial base, the raw materials, the food uh, ability to, uh, to feed themselves, uh, the agriculture uh, and the technology, uh, they can go their own way. And so we're seeing in the last few months the beginning of a war that's going to go on for, I think, 20 years, maybe 30 or 40 years. The world is splitting away, and it, it won't be a, a pretty sight because the United States uh, and its European satellites are trying to fight uh, to prevent uh, an in inevitable breakaway that it cannot prevent any more than uh, Europe's landlord class could prevent uh, industrial capitalism from developing in the 19th century. Yeah, and this is a good segue to what I wanted to ask you about, Professor Hudson, which is the economic war on Russia. And I should say, of course, that today is May 9th. Today is Victory Day in Russia, celebrating the Soviet Union's victory over Nazi Germany in World War II. Not, not the U.S. and British victory over Nazi Germany, the Soviet victory in which 27 million Soviets died. And uh, there actually, I should say that here on YouTube in the comment section, there are some Russians who are your fans, Professor Hudson, saying they're thanking you for your your cogent analysis of Russia. Um, and I should say, by the way, just to everyone watching on YouTube, please, if you're watching, please subscribe. Click the red subscribe button below. I'm building up this new channel. But on the subject of Russia, Professor Hudson, we now have seen that since Russia's military intervention in Ukraine on February 24th, we saw really what could be referred to as financial shock and awe. That's a term that's been used just as when the U.S. invaded Iraq, it waged a military shock and awe campaign on Iraq. Well, now it is waging economic or financial shock and awe on Russia. And Russia has been referred to as the most heavily sanctioned country in history, which I think is probably accurate, although maybe uh, the DPRK, maybe North Korea is more sanctioned. But I mean, we're talking about levels of sanctions not seen in against a, a, a country of this size ever. And I, you can also refer to it as the contemporary equivalent of medieval siege warfare against Russia. Joe Biden, in a speech in Poland, made it clear what Washington's goal is. It's regime change. The U.S. wants to overthrow the Russian government, as it did in the Soviet Union in 1991, and clearly install a, a pliant, alcoholic, neoliberal puppet like Boris Yeltsin, so can you talk about, from an economic perspective, what you see the effects of this economic war on Russia, and specifically in terms of the, the concept of decoupling, which you have talked about for years, 
And you have said that the Western sanctions on Russia and China were accelerating that process of decoupling. And this was before the financial shock and all we've seen. So you talked about, you know, a, a move away from this neoliberal globalization where every, everything is interconnected, at least capital is interconnected globally to the creation of a kind of you know, what you could say, kind of an economic iron curtain. But how do you see that also in terms of integrating the Eurasian economies more deeply? And also, what is the effect on the European economies, which my impression is that Europe is going to become what you call an economic dead zone, more and more reliant on the U.S., whereas Russia, China and Iran and even potentially India, Pakistan, Bangladesh, Indonesia, we're seeing much more economic integration of Asia, which is, of course, where the majority of humanity lives. Well, you have used the word shock and awe. Uh, picking it up from the U.S. Uh, statements of shock and awe. There hasn't been any shock and awe. There's been a, a, a self-defeating uh, piffle and laughter. That's not all. <laughs> uh, the, uh, th there was an attempt to grab $300 billion of Russia's foreign reserves, uh, saying, well, there, uh, any country that leaves their reserves in American banks or in the uh, American Monetary Fund to stabilize our currency, we can grab if we don't like their policy. So the idea was now uh, Russia is going to go broke. Uh, it can't afford to uh, uh, buy anything without U.S. dollars. And uh, the people are going to get so angry, they're going to vote against Yeltsin. And then we can pour in our money uh, to uh, twerps like Navalny uh, and other uh, uh, right-wingers uh, who will promise to be the new Yeltsins. Well, it didn't work that way. Uh, they did grab the 300 billion of Russia's uh, reserves. Uh, Russia immediately said, okay, we have uh, our own uh, our own money. We're now, uh, fortunately, we have enough oil and gas uh, that we don't have to sell uh, to uh, Europe and Germany. If they want to freeze in the dark and uh, let their uh, pipes burst when uh, the weather gets cold, that's their problem. We'll sell to, uh, to uh, India and China uh, and other countries. And uh, there was, an, uh, for a few days, the, uh, the ruble plunged uh, by saying, oh, oh we, uh, uh, what is Russia going to do? So all the foreign exchange traders thought they were going to, uh, you can trust Biden to have a really brilliant policies, brilliant, brilliant president. I think Paul Krugman, the, uh, the Nobel Prize winner, said Biden is the greatest American president since Roosevelt, since Truman. <laughs> he said, that's so smart. Uh, well, uh, this is uh, uh, so much. Uh, that's why Krugman got the Nobel Prize for making statements like that. Uh, he, uh, the, uh, immediately, Russia said, well, obviously, we can't get paid in dollars anymore or in euros because if well, you'll just grab them. So you'll have to buy our oil and gas in rubles. We're going to price it in our own currency, just like uh, China had talked about. Uh, pr uh, pricing its exports in, in yuan. Uh, and so what's happened is that immediately the ruble not only recovered, but is now selling at a higher rate than it was before the American sanctions. So there was no shock at all. Uh, the, sh the Americans felt shock. The Americans are shocked. The Americans are awed. The Russians are laughing and everything is going their way. Uh, so it's almost as if uh, uh, 
I would not accuse Biden of being on the pay of, uh, uh, of Russia. And I, I would not say that the lead, leaders of Congress are Russian agents. But if they were Russian agents, if they were paid by Russia, they could not have done a better job of helping Russia do uh, catalyzing its protectionism that it wouldn't do itself. The fact is that uh, uh, President Putin and many of the uh, uh, people around him still were neoliberals. I mean, they began as neoliberals in the 90s. They began by hoping that they could uh, make a arrangement with uh, uh, Germany and Europe, that Europe would develop their industry and make Russia as efficient an economy as uh, Germany or the United States. Well, obviously uh, that uh, hasn't happened. All the same, they didn't think of imposing protective tariffs uh, as the United States did. Uh, they didn't protect their agriculture. They bought uh, uh, grain and cheese uh, and other agriculture products from uh, the Baltics and from other countries. Well, now that uh, once the uh, Americans put on uh, the sanctions beginning already under the Trump administration, all of a sudden, Russia had to produce its own food. Uh, and it did, and it made the investment. It's now the largest agricultural exporter in the world, not a food deficit country. Uh, it, it's not importing any more cheese from Lithuania and the Baltics. It has its own cheese segment. And uh, the sanctions are forcing Russia to do exactly what the United States, Germany, and other protectionist countries did in the 19th century, developing their own industry by uh, uh, isolating it from uh, low price foreign imports that would be priced so low that uh, uh, the Russians otherwise could not afford to make the investment in uh, factories, plant and equipment, research and development. So uh, what the United States has done is actually catalyze uh, Russia moving together. And also for three or four years, I've been talking with Russians and with uh, the Chinese and uh, other countries about the need to de-dollarize. You got uh, if you want to develop your own economy, you have to develop your economy in your own interest with uh, public spending and uh, uh, planning uh, independent from the United States. Well, now uh, they uh, everybody thought that well, in a few years it may take a decade for China, Russia, Iran, all these countries to break away from the U.S. But America said we're going to help you. We're going to speed up the breakaway process. We're going to <laughs> Excuse me. Uh, we're going to isolate you, so you've got to band together against us. So that's exactly uh, what it's done. Uh, it, it, uh, you can just imagine how uh, the Russians are uh, crying all the way to the bank uh, about this, and how China is uh, watching what the Americans are doing uh, to Russia and listening to President Biden saying, you know, Russia's not a real enemy. A real enemy is China, and we're finished with Russia. Then we're going to go against China and do the same thing to us. Well, you can imagine what this is leading uh, the Chinese uh, government to uh, try to plan to be sufficiently independent from the United States that uh, similar type sanctions will not uh, hurt us. And President Xi in the last few weeks has said we've got to make China uh, as independent as possible. We've got to make our own computer chips. Uh, we've got to not depend on the United States for anything except maybe Walt Disney movies. Uh, <laughs> that's basically uh, about it. So. Uh, the, it's, it's as if, uh, you know, I mentioned earlier that finance lives in the short term. Uh, American policy, being financial policy, lives in the short term. And it's looking, what can we make a quick, a quick attack, a quick victory, and forget about what's going to happen next? Uh, I'm told that if they're 
uh, years ago, already from the Iran, uh, from the war with Iran and then Iraq and Syria in the State Department, uh, if there were Arab specialists who uh, spoke Arab, they were all fired because they said, well, if you can speak Arabic, you must have learned Arabic because you're sympathetic with them. You're fired. We won't have anyone who can uh, read Arabic here. Well, now they fight uh, in the last uh, decade or so, they've fired all the Russia specialists from the uh, uh, the uh, State Department and CIA saying, well, if you can read Russian, why would you want to learn Russian? You must like something in Russia. Wanted to learn it, you're fired. So they have people who have no idea of what's happening in Russia, no idea of what's happening uh, in these other countries. And uh, they're blinded by their ideology. And if anyone would say, wait a minute, uh, public planning and uh, uh, making education a public utility uh, is actually making them more competitive. Well, that's against the ideology. That's not the corporate type. Uh, and they're thought, well, we really can't trust people. Maybe they're tending towards socialism. Uh, and they're out the door. So uh, you're having uh, American policy pretty much uh, run by the blind. Uh, and uh, the Europeans are simply taking orders uh, and money in little white envelopes uh, from the United States to uh, uh, just uh, show their uh, loyalty and uh, basically are willing to uh, spend uh, three to seven times as much for their energy, for their uh, liquefied natural gas and oil uh, by buying from the United States than they are uh, uh, by a long-term contract with Russia. Uh, Europe is willing to spend now $5 trillion on putting together uh, ports uh, that can handle shipping uh, tankers for liquefied natural gas instead of relying on the Russian pipeline, the Nord Stream 2, uh, that's already there. So uh, Russia's... Uh, uh, Europe is making an enormous sacrifice. Uh, if it doesn't have Russian gas uh, and it won't, it refuses to pay rubles. It says, if you don't give us our gas and oil for free, you're attacking us because we've been getting all your oil and gas for free because all the dollars, all the money we pay, you've recycled to the United States in uh, your foreign reserves. Thank heavens the U.S. can grab it all. If you don't continue to give it to us for free, then you're attacking us. To the United States, other countries protecting their economy, other countries trying to raise their living standards, and especially other countries undertaking land reform are viewed as enemies of the United States because they're an enemy of the neoliberal American financial system. Uh, and the idea, the unipolar world where the United States gets all of the uh, profits and rents and interests of the world economy, just as uh, ancient Rome, stripped its provinces by uh, getting all of their uh, wealth and income uh, for themselves, not producing it at home, while impoverishing their own uh, domestic population. Uh, it's it's uh, just as an exact parallel. So uh, Europe is willing to uh, say, well, okay, if we don't have Russian gas, well, that means that our uh, uh, chemical companies cannot buy the gas to make the fertilizer to put on to make our crops grow and uh, our agricultural productivity is going to fall by about 50%. Uh, we're also going to spend a lot more money on America's military uh, NATO uh, arms to support NATO. Uh, so we're, we're higher food, uh, higher military spending, uh, higher energy costs. Uh, this uh, ends uh, Europe as an industrial rival to uh, uh, 
to Asia and Eurasia, I should say, because now uh, the Chinese Belt and Road Initiative and uh, other uh, spending uh, uh, investment, capital investment uh, throughout uh, uh, Western Asia is uh, creating a new uh, productive plant that uh, uh, is not only self-sufficient, but is leaving the United States and Europe without uh, any industrial competitive power. We've, they've priced themselves out of the world market. They're no longer competitive. Uh, so that's uh, the world that's developing. And I'm sure the only way that uh, the uh, NATO countries can fight against it is militarily by threatening to bomb, uh, but they can't fight economically. They can't fight financially. They tried by disconnecting Russia from the Swiss system. It put in its own system very quickly. Uh, uh, they, uh, they, it really is left without a strategy, uh, except that it's uh, done a wonderful job of uh, controlling the public relations uh, uh, dimension uh, of this war, making it appear as if somehow other countries are the aggressors and not letting America uh, exploit them. Uh, that's, uh, and making it appear as if uh, Russia is the aggressor in Ukraine instead of NATO, prodding and prodding and prodding Russia to say, we're going to capture uh, capture your uh, port, uh, Crimea, and we're going to uh, attack the Russian speakers uh, if you don't uh, fight back. And we're going to keep bombing them year after year from 19, from 2014 on. Uh, sorry, yeah, 14 on. We're going to keep bombing them uh, until you uh, protect them. So all of this is uh, treated as if America is purely defending itself. Well, this is what uh, this is what the Nazi uh, uh, said in World War uh, II. Uh, Hitler and Goebbels said uh, we can always mobilize a population to support our war by saying it's a war to defend ourselves, and uh, that's how the United States and Europe are doing. Not only are they pulling a uh, uh, an uh, 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 pulling a strategy out of Goebbels' Nazi book, but a few weeks ago, they went uh, the Germany went to the museums, the military museums, where they had the old Panzer tanks from World War II, and they sent the Panzer tanks, the Nazi tanks from World War II to, to Ukraine, saying this is symbolic. Now we can fight Russia with the same German Nazi tanks run by the neo-Nazi uh, groups. Uh, uh, that uh, Zelensky is supporting the same Nazi fight against Russia. We can reenact World War II with the same tanks, even symbolically, to show that this is a fight of Nazism, ah, neoliberalism against uh, against Eurasia. No, I mean uh, we've also seen you know Germany not only remilitarizing but also it, boosting its relations with Japan. I mean it, it, there are some terrifying echoes of of World War II. But you mentioned something that I want to analyze a little bit more, uh, which is the strength of the Russian ruble. And the you you know, I, I talked about the concept of financial shock and awe um, that was waged on Russia. And uh, President Biden said that the Rush the Russian ruble has become rubble. Is he he joked. He said the Russian ruble has become rubble. Well that's actually not at all what happened. Let me get up. The, this is the value of, here we go, of the dollar to Russian rubles. Right now, our Russian rubles are at 69 to the dollar. A few days ago, it was at 64, 65 to the dollar. 
which is actually better than it was even before the Russian war in Ukraine, which began in February 24th. And it did spike. And, and there was a, a peak here at which it was it was devalued to 139 to the dollar, about double from now or half the value it has now. But in the in the months leading up to the Russian military intervention in November and December, it was around 75 to the dollar. So the ruble has actually strengthened despite these sanctions. And here's a report from Reuters from five days ago. That was May 4th. The ruble leaps to an over two year high versus the dollar and the euro as the EU continues to strengthen sanctions. So the, the euro, uh, excuse me, the ruble is doing quite well. And you talked about the Russian mechanism to force Europe to buy energy exports from Europe, energy exports from Russia, rather, imports into Europe in the Russian ruble. And this, this graphic here for people watching, it's in Russian, but it really it just shows this mechanism in which a European firm that wants to buy gas from Russia's state-owned gas giant, Gazprom, it has to send the money in euros to the Gazprom bank, which is the obviously the bank that works with Gazprom. And then it puts it in a special account in euros. And then that is sold in the Moscow exchange for Russian rubles. And then those rubles are put in a, another special account called a K account that belongs to that European firm. It has two accounts, two special accounts with Gazprom Bank, one in euros, one in rubles. And then this special ruble account sends that money to Gazprom. And then once the money reaches Gazprom, that's when Russia considers that the payment officially went through. So this is the mechanism by which Russia is getting paid in rubles. And much of Europe claimed at first that they would not do so, but eventually they gave in. So that, that's an incredible development. And related to that, what I wanted to ask you about is I think another reason that the Russian ruble has strengthened and, and, and stabilized is not only because Russia continues to maintain constant exports of energy to Europe and other parts of the world, but also Russia, the, the, you can talk about the central bank policies, but, but one of the policies is that the Russian central bank has basically put the ruble on gold, which I think is a is very interesting and historic development. And we saw that from the beginning of April until the end of June, the Bank of Russia says that it's going to buy gold at a fixed price of 5,000 rubles per gram of gold. And then it, the question is whether or not in July, when this policy ends, if it's going to continue and if the ruble will basically become uh, fixed, become pegged to gold, like the US was, the US dollar was up until 1972, right? So you don't think it will be. So talk about this policy. Do you, do you think that, that the gold standard is going to come back or apparently you don't think so? No, Russia is not going on, on the gold standard. What it is doing is investing its uh, foreign exchange in the only way that is not grabbable. It's investing it in gold. It's putting gold in its reserves. Uh, this is, it is not setting its uh, exchange rate according to the price of gold, but it is using it is buying gold with the, uh, uh, what it's been getting. I want to go back to your talk about rubble. You talked about the, from ruble to rubble with uh, uh, 
President Biden. Uh, there have been a lot of pictures of rubble uh, in the news for the last few days. For instance, there's uh, talks of, here's a Ukrainian sent out a picture saying, look at this picture of a Russian tank. We shot it down. It's rubble. Turns out it's a Ukrainian tank that they just say, oh, it's the Russian tank we shot down. Uh, so uh, basically, uh, it's uh, they're taking their own destruction and uh, they're saying that uh, while they're being destroyed, they're saying, no, this is a picture of Russia being destroyed, uh, Russian assets, not Ukrainian assets being destroyed. Well, the similar thing is with uh, Russia and ruble. Uh, America says, well, look, haha, we've isolated uh, the, uh, the ruble. Well, what's happened if you isolate uh, the ruble and you say, uh, we're not going to export anything more to Russia, so it's not going to be able to spend any of its rubles on buying American or uh, European uh, products. Well, meanwhile, uh, Russia can continue to uh, earn uh, rubles from uh, uh, Germany and, and Europe, and it can continue to earn foreign exchange from uh, other countries that it's selling its agriculture to at rising prices, its oil and gas at rising prices uh, too. So obviously the uh, balance of payments is going way up and uh, they believe that uh, what is in store is a new monetary system that is an alternative to the dollar IMF system. And uh, this system will, other countries will hold their reserves in each other's currencies. In other words, Russia will hold uh, 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 Indian rupees, and Chinese yuan, uh, China will hold uh, uh, rupees and uh, uh, Russian rubles. Uh, there will be uh, uh, special, the equivalent of what Keynes uh, uh, thought of as bankers, something like uh, artificial uh, created uh, special drawing rights that the banks will be able to create to help fund governments uh, to undertake uh, capital investment. Uh, but uh, for settlements, settling balance of payments deficits, among countries, once they uh, have sort of exhaust, uh, don't uh, have enough foreign exchange to uh, make a swap, uh, they will use gold as the means of settlement because gold is a pure asset. It's not a liability. Uh, any uh, foreign currency has basically is uh, held uh, in a foreign country that has the power to do what America did to Russia and just grab it all and say, we're just wiping it all out. It's as if you have a bank account and the bank says, we've just emptied out your account uh, to give to one of our friends and then you don't have it anymore. You can't do that if gold is held in your own country. Uh, Venezuela made the problem of uh, keeping its gold uh, in uh, England, trusting England, saying that, well, uh, even if there's war, they'll never interrupt uh, gold and finance and England just grabbed uh, Venezuela's gold. So obviously uh, countries are not going to ask uh, uh, to leave their gold in other countries. Even little Germany has asked America to begin sending back the gold that it has in the Federal Reserve Bank of America because it's worried that uh, what if it ever buys Russian gas again? America will grab all of Germany's gold, grab all the German money, and uh, it'll be like World War I all over again. Uh, they'll call it uh, the Hun. Uh, we're taking its money. So uh, you're having uh, this act that America did of grabbing uh, uh, Russian money, Afghanistan's foreign reserves have grabbed. This is telling all the other countries, pull all your money out of dollars. What are they going to put it in? There's not that much that they can put it in that uh, is absolutely safe. So gold is a flight to safety uh, today because it's uh, one of the things that uh, all of the world realizes is having an international value 
for settling balance of payments deficits uh, that is uh, independent of uh, world politics. Uh, so that's the explanation. Uh, so Russia is not going on gold. It's going on uh, an uh, independent standard from the United States with gold an element of its foreign reserve, just as it's holding uh, Chinese yuan and uh, uh, Indian rupees. It's not going on the rupee standard. It's not going on the yuan standard. And it's not going on the, uh, uh, the gold standard. But it, these are elements of its foreign reserves. I have, I have a question for you. It's kind of a more technical question that I've always wondered, and I've tried to do research on this because there's not much information. So we know that that the U.S. and European Union have frozen over $300 billion from Russia's central bank foreign exchange reserves. And of course, they did this after doing the same to Iran, to Venezuela, to Afghanistan, which is now threatening a famine in Afghanistan that could kill more people than died in the 20-year NATO-US military occupation of Afghanistan, which is another topic uh, that, that really needs to get more coverage. But anyway, so my question is, when, and, and I should add, by the way, that the US and the EU, they've frozen uh, nearly half of Russia's uh, central bank's foreign exchange reserves and are now saying they're not going to give it back. So they stole it. I mean, they stole half of its, its, its reserves. My question is, what is the mechanism by which they effectively freeze and steal those reserves? Because my understanding is that there is, of course, a physical element of those reserves, which you're talking about, which is gold, right? But not all of the $640 billion in Russia's central bank reserves is physical currency, right? A lot of it is just in, it's computerized. It's numbers in computer and bank, bank accounts. So... When, when the U.S. and the EU steal this money from central banks like in Russia or Afghanistan, obviously in the case of Venezuela, as you mentioned, they physically stole the gold. But if it's not gold, is it physical cash restored in Moscow, like like physical dollars? No. In e or it's mostly just numbers in a computer, which is why they can steal it. Every country needs... Uh to manage its exchange rates. And there's always like a up and down and a zigzag uh, in uh, the flow of payments for imports and exports, investment, capital movements, debt service, uh, all of that. So countries want to stabilize their exchange rates. And how do they do that? Well, most of the big exchange markets were, are in uh, the United States, in uh, New York and in London. So uh, countries would leave their money in correspondent banks, like uh, when uh, Iran uh, at the time under the Shah kept its foreign reserves in the Chase Manhattan Bank. So uh, when Iran, uh, after the revolution and Khomeini came in, and Iran wanted to uh, pay uh, interest on uh, its, the foreign debt that the Shah had uh, run up, uh, they told Chase, uh, please, uh, here's our bondholders, please uh, pay them. Well, Chase uh, was told by the Treasury, don't pay them. Uh, just take the money and hold it. So Chase said, we put a freeze on your account. Uh, and so Iran defaulted. And then uh, Chase and the uh, State Department said, oh, Iran defaulted. Uh, it, didn't, it missed a payment. Now all the money that it's due for foreign debt has to be paid all at once. And Chase paid all of the bondholders off. No more money in the account. It was all emptied out. Suppose you had an account in Chase Manhattan. And I said, okay, now you've done something really bad. You put Michael Hudson on the show. We're going to grab your account. We're going to give it to Mr. Guaido uh, because he needs the money in Venezuela because the people still are not voting for him. 
So uh, all of a sudden, you won't have uh, money in your account. It'll go to Mr. Guaido's account. Uh, well, that's what happened with Russia. They took the money. Uh, they grabbed the money from Russia's account. And they said, half the money we're going to give to, I think, to the 9-11 people. Because we all know that it was Russia that bombed the World Trade Center on 9-11. Uh, and we're going to give it to uh, uh, all sorts of other people who suffered all over the world. It's all Russia's fault. But, but uh, Professor Hudson, when you say that they seized Russia's assets, you mean the assets held by the Russian Central Bank in foreign bank accounts? Yes, yes. That's and, exactly and, right. and, and these are not physical assets. These are num numbers in a computer, right? Right. Uh, in Venezuela's case, uh, Venezuela had used some of its oil company earnings to buy oil stations and uh, refining companies. And uh, uh, the United States actually grabbed uh, the uh, gas ownership of the gas stations and uh, uh, refineries and distribution system that Venezuela had had in America, uh, but Russia. Uh, yeah, it's called it's called Citgo. Citgo, yeah. Uh, Russia doesn't really have uh, any capital investments in the United States, so all it, it did have bank accounts, and that's what that was all that the United States could grab. So when you say that that when Russia, at least for now, the central bank is allowing convertibility of rubles at a set rate into gold. That's a temporary policy to make sure that they have a physical asset that their central bank reserves can hold on to. Because if it's held, if they have dollars or euros in their reserves, my understanding is that's not physical cash. It's actually just numbers in a computer. So they don't have it physically in their bank reserves. So it's easy to steal that money. Obviously, if they had billions of dollars worth of cash, of paper cash, it would be much harder to steal it. But if it's just on a bank account, then they can just, if it's numbers in a computer, then they can just freeze it. So so I think this is also a reflection of a, of a point that you've also, also made about the financialization of the economy is it's also just a lot of this capital is not even physical capital. Yes, it's, uh, uh, it's uh, savings take the form, one person's savings is another person's debt. So uh, these are, uh, Russia's uh, deposits in American banks that it used to buy or sell rubles or to buy uh, goods to America or to receive payments in if Russia exports something to oil. Uh, American uh, buyers would, uh, uh, of Russian oil would put the money into, uh, here's a, a check to Russia, they'd put it in the Russian bank account. They never dreamed that this would be grabbed. Uh, but now uh, Russia says, okay, you've grabbed our money now. Uh, that means that we get to grab all of your assets in Russia. This is great. Uh, all of your stock holdings and uh, uh, Neural Nickel and Yukos uh, and all these other companies, uh, you know, tit for pay. Okay, you got the money we have there. We have the assets. Uh, look at us as just buy, buying the assets on the cheap. And uh, the Western investors in Russia <coughs> have all been uh, selling their uh, Russian assets. Uh, to show that they're good American citizens of NATO, uh, and the Russians uh, are buying up these uh, European and American assets uh, all on the cheap, by, largely by borrowing money from the banks. They get the money from the central bank now that they're so uh, wealthy and uh, uh, all of the foreign exchange reserves as a result from the American shock and awe uh, statement that uh, uh, sort of uh, shock and awe in reverse. Uh, so uh, Russia is coming through just fine, and you can imagine how the American strategists are gnashing the teeth. They don't understand uh, how Russia was able to avoid uh, being bankrupted by this. They they really uh, they're they're not economists and they're not really financiers. They're foreign policy strategists. They're uh, ideologues. 
that are not uh, very well uh, educated in how to think about the future and how to recognize the fact that the world can actually change from what it is today into something else. And sometimes that change is not in America's interest. Uh, that is uh, sort of a, not a permitted thought uh, over here. So uh, essentially, Americans and Europe are operating in the blind, uh, and Russia is, and China and uh, Iran and India are all looking, how are we going to restructure the world uh, so that we come out of it more prosperous than we were before, not more impoverished? Uh, that's really what the, uh, uh, the world is dividing into. Professor Hudson, I don't know if this is directly related, but it's it's something that's always been uh, a very curious question in my mind. Germany, back in 2016 and 2017, it moved, physically moved its central bank's gold reserves, which had been stored in New York, London, and Paris, and it physically moved those reserves, those gold reserves, to Frankfurt. Now, this was before the U.S. and, and Britain stole... Uh, Venezuela's gold reserves and other reserves. But do you think that, do you know anything about this, what motivated Germany's central bank to move its the physical location of its gold reserves into Germany itself? I don't think it's all moved yet. It's still going on. Gold is very heavy. It's as heavy as lead, uh, basically. And uh, they, uh, America said, well, you know, we really don't have uh, the, uh, uh, we can only do it little bit, trickle by trickle. So America's been returning the gold uh, very slowly. Uh, so I think uh, Germany, with all of its talk, uh, its history of hyperinflation, I think just wanted, uh, it realizes that now that uh, gold is not used to settle balance of payments uh, uh, deficits anymore, this, the gold that Germany had in America was all of the exports that it made to the United States during the Vietnam War. This is Vietnam War gold. Uh, when uh, Germ uh, uh, you remember that Pr President de Gaulle would uh, every month cash in the dollars that America spent in Vietnam, uh, would all be spent from Vietnam to Paris. The dollars that end up there, the Central Bank of Paris, would uh, uh, essentially uh, buy gold on the uh, London exchange and uh, keep the gold uh, either in New York or in, uh, in London. Well, uh, Germany kept, uh, because uh, America uh, defeated uh, uh, Germany, uh, it, and it wasn't going to keep its gold in Russia that defeated it even more. It kept it said, well, okay, we're we're cashing in our surplus dollars for gold, but we're going to hold the dollar the gold in America. But now it says, well, America's never going to uh, settle its balance of payments deficits and its foreign debt in gold again because it doesn't have any uh, balance of payments surplus anymore ability to do that. Um, it doesn't have uh, it, it. It's going to spend its uh, export surplus and its investment surplus on war. So as long uh, it's never going to be able to pay, that's obvious. Let's get the gold back. That was the calculation that every country was making already a decade ago. They realized that America can never repay its foreign debt, unlike other countries. When other countries can't pay their foreign debt, they have to go to the International Monetary Fund that tells them, well, uh, we'll make you a loan, but you have to sell off your uh, natural uh, resource reserves to the Americans, uh, or we won't lend you the money. Well, uh, basically, <laughs> that's uh, uh, not going to happen uh, uh, anymore. They realize that America uh, uh, is, is just going to say, ha ha, we, we're just not going to pay. 
Well, the, now other countries are saying, wait a minute, if America is never going to repay its foreign debt, why do, why do the Global South countries have to pay its debt to the IMF and the World Bank, all, all this dollar debt to dollar bondholders? Uh, if, if America won't pay, we don't have to pay. Let's have a clean slate. Let's uh, start from the uh, beginning, and we're only going to have debt and credit relations with friendly countries, not countries that want to uh, go to war with us, like America did in Afghanistan, Syria, Iraq, Iran, uh, and now Russia. Uh, so that's basically what's happening. Great. And just to wrap up here, I have another question, and then I know your time is limited, so I really appreciate you being here. Um, I, I have a quick question about the decline in U.S. dollar hegemony. We were talking about the strength of the ruble, the economic war on Russia. We talked about the bilateral trade that's growing between Russia and China using the Chinese yuan, between China, uh, excuse me, between Russia and India using the Indian rupee. And uh, Iran also is talking about doing business with a basket of currencies. I, I want to point to a report that was recently published by economists who work with the IMF. And I, I published a, an article about this over at multipolarisa.com. IMF admits U.S. dollar hegemony declining due to rise of Chinese yuan and sanctions on Russia. And there is this report that was published by the IMF, by these economists. And I, I cite you, Professor Hudson, in this report. Uh, the, re the report, it's a working paper from the IMF published in March titled The Stealth Erosion of Dollar Dominance. And here's a graph for people watching. Here's a graph from the report. And it shows a not, a, not a large, but a noticeable and consistent decline in the use of the holding of the U.S. dollar in the foreign exchange reserves of central banks around the world. So this is around the world. And it's declined in the past 20 years from about 70% of central bank exchange reserves to about 60%. So a 10% decline. That's not massive, but it's steady. And I think it's going to accelerate. And at the same time, they've also found an increase in the use of what they call non-traditional currencies in the foreign exchange reserves of central banks around the world. And here you can see this graph. I mean, it looks like a significant influence because if you look at the y-axis, it's only from 90 to 100. But there is a significant increase in the use of other currencies in foreign, bank res uh, foreign exchange reserves aside from the US dollar, the euro, the Japanese yen, and the British pound. And the most uh, the, the currency that is increasingly popular is the Chinese yuan. So that's one half of my question, which I'll get to in a second. The other half is, is about this interesting report that was published in the Financial Times, and it's titled Russia Sanctions Threatened to Erode Dominance of Dollar, says IMF. And the FT interviewed the IMF's first deputy managing director, Gita Gopinath, who acknowledged that the sanctions imposed on Russia over its military intervention in Ukraine uh, could lead to what she says, fragmentation at a smaller level. And she did say that the dollar is eroding influence, but would remain the major global currency. So, I mean, that's a two-part. I'm wondering if you could talk about the, the decline in U.S. dollar hegemony and how the sanctions will potentially erode that. And then the other half of the question is, can you comment on the declining use of dollars in foreign exchange reserves? 
Well, this is what my book, Super Imperialism, uh, was all about. Uh, when I first published it in 1972, uh, I could see how the whole thing was unfolding uh, for the next 50 years. And uh, uh, we just published last year a third edition of it, bringing it up, up to date. Uh, dollar hegemony means America, uh, America's entire balance of payments deficit in the 50s, 60s, and 70s was military. So uh, the dollars that were being pumped into the world economy were the result of military spending. But the dollars would end up in foreign central banks, uh, especially uh, from Asia to uh, France, Germany, others. What were they going to do with it? Well, after 1971, they could not buy gold anymore. So all they could do was buy U.S. Treasury securities, IOUs. And so they relent to the Treasury all the money that America was spending militarily and uh, the more money America spent in waging its Cold War militarily against the world, the more money central banks would lend to the U.S. government to finance the U.S. deficit that was spent largely on the military-industrial complex and uh, foreign military operations. So uh, dollar hegemony was uh, a free lunch financing America's uh, uh, almost 800 military bases uh, across uh, the world uh, to fight against communism, defined as any country that doesn't let American uh, industry and finance by control of its raw materials, agriculture, uh, resources. Uh, and uh, the, uh, this has now uh, come to an end. Uh, right now, uh, that uh, America has grabbed Afghanistan's and Russia's uh, gold. All of a sudden, uh, it's obvious that this summer, there's going to be an enormous uh, squeeze on third world countries, uh, the global south. Their energy prices are going to go way up, and that's going to hurt them just like the oil shock of 1974 uh, and five did, um, uh, balance of payments deficit. They're going to have to pay higher food costs uh, because food prices are going to go way up now that uh, 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 the Ukraine uh, war is uh, uh, is, is erupting. Uh, and a lot of their foreign debt, uh, dollarized debt service are, are coming due, and they're, they're facing a choice. If they pay the foreign debt, they can't afford to uh, buy the oil and energy that they need to run their factories and heat their homes. They can't afford to buy the food to feed their people. Whose interests are they going to put first? Well, of course, their leaders are going to put America's interest first and their own interest second because their leaders, uh, if they're uh, a client oligarchy, are put in power by the U.S. military and uh, as uh, we, uh, sort of miniature Pinochets uh, throughout Latin America and other countries. So uh, suppose other countries decide, well, we're going to feed ourselves and we're not going to uh, wreck our economy just to pay foreign bondholders. Uh, we're a sovereign country. We're going to put our national interests first. Well, then the United States can say, aha, we're going to grab all of your foreign assets in the United States. Well, uh, other countries can say, oh, they're going to do to us just what they did to Afghanistan and Russia. Let's move our money out of the United States quickly. Maybe uh, let, uh, if we don't have dollars, well, it's true, we can't pay our uh, dollar bondholders, but at least we can, uh, in international markets, we can buy uh, the food and the energy we need. And so uh, America, the uh, tensions the disruption of uh, world prices and inflation and trade that uh, is a result of the NATO attack on Russia is now going uh, threatens to drive all of the uh, southern uh, sphere countries uh, into an alliance with uh, Russia, China, 
India and all the rest. So America basically uh, is creating a new uh, uh, Berlin Wall. Uh, <laughs> but the wall is keeping it, is isolating itself from other countries and driving other countries all together into what I hope will be a happy, uh, self-sufficient, uh, uh, non-U.S. globalized economy. Well, I want to thank you, Professor Michael Hudson. It's always a real pleasure having you. I know you're very busy, so thank you for giving us so much of your time. I'll say that the comment section here on YouTube has been very vibrant, <laughs> some interesting conversation. And what's nice is there are people from all over the world, from the U.S., Latin America, Europe, and from Russia. So it's good to see a, a mix of people. And um, for anyone who wants to listen to this, you can check out the podcast version. If you look at Multipolarista on you know, Spotify and iTunes and all the other podcast platforms. And I'll just say when I, while I wrap up here that today we were talking about at the beginning of this discussion, a new book that Michael Hudson is publishing this week. It is called The Destiny of Civilization, Finance Capitalism, Industrial Capitalism or Socialism. It's a very good book. I, I had the privilege of getting a review copy early. So definitely check out that book. You can also find all of Professor Hudson's writings at michael-hudson.com. And again, anyone who's watching this on YouTube, please, I'm building up a new channel here. Please click the red subscribe button below it to help fight against the algorithm, which obviously does not encourage uh, critical uh, content like this that criticizes neoliberalism and imperialism. So. With that said, Professor Hudson, is there anything else you want to add before we conclude here? I think we've done it. Great. Thank you. Thanks so much. For anyone who uh, wants to support this show, please, you can go to uh, patreon.com slash multipolarista. There's a link in the description below. I don't have any big donors, so anything that you can provide to help support this goes a long way. Please consider that. And there will be a transcript of this interview when, when I do professor, interviews with Professor Hudson, I always have a transcript, and that will be up at his website. I will also publish it over at multipolarista.com. So please subscribe, consider supporting at the link below in the description, and I will definitely have Professor Hudson on in the future to talk about all of the new developments in the new Cold War and whatever crazy decisions these Western governments are going to be carrying out in the next, uh, next few years. <laughs> Thanks, Professor Hudson. It's really good soon. to be here. It was a good discussion. And thanks to everyone here. Uh, for people who are watching, you can also find this over at Rumble. If you go to rumble.com slash multipolarista, or at, you can find it at Rockfin, rockfin.com slash multipolarista, or Odyssey. So I have all the videos backed up in case of censorship. And of course, the podcast version is available as well. So I'll see you all next time. Thanks for watching and listening.